Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of EU Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, the author of the Brussels Playbook column, and I wanted to let you know some good news. We've got not only an ambassador, a European commissioner, we've also got our first ex-prime minister who's a confirmed listener of the podcast. So that's great news, and what it means is that we really are getting out there, and we really encourage you to rate us and review us and tell us what we're doing right and wrong. So if you've got someone you want to hear on the podcast, send us an email to playbook at politico.eu and share it with your friends and family and say exactly what you think about on the podcast platforms where you're listening to us. Now, coming up in this week's episode, we're going to talk President Trump. He signed a new set of US sanctions against Russia, and we talk through the latest on that situation and the conflict in Ukraine with David Herzenhorn, who's Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. Ukraine is a summer hotspot to watch. The violence there is at its highest level so far in 2017, and we've seen summer flare-ups before during the Russian occupation. Because of those Russia developments, we've dug up an interview from the archives. Our main interview this week is with Anders Fo Rasmussen. He's the former NATO Secretary General and is now a lobbyist for the Ukrainian government. He tells us why he thinks Russia is still a strategic threat and where he likes to holiday in Denmark. Our EU WTF this week is about the Greek statistician who is convicted for telling the truth about the state of the Greek economy. And in Dear Politico, we help an NGO worker whose organisation is allegedly misusing EU funds. Joining me now is David Herzenhorn, the chief Brussels correspondent of Politico and also our resident Ukraine and Russia expert. Welcome, David. Great to be with you. So there's a lot to dive into. I noticed that we have a situation where Russia has been conducting some somewhat troubling exercises around the Baltics that caused some NATO jets to scramble. And the Ukraine conflict is also reaching some of its deadliest levels in the last year or so. What's your take on the latest state of play on the Russia front lines? Well, there's no question there's a lot of intense activity happening right along the Russian border on both sides. NATO just finished up US Army, finished up exercises involving thousands of troops. One that I observed, paratroopers dropping into Bulgaria, drilling to take back sovereign NATO territory from an unnamed aggressive force. Who could that be? Meanwhile, Russia is now about to conduct its Zapad, which means West military exercises involving 
as many as 100,000 troops. That's caused a lot of alarm with NATO. But meanwhile, President Putin today has gone off fishing, so he doesn't seem too concerned. When President Putin creates a cover, we all know something else is going to come soon afterwards. It's what we learned from the Olympics, at least, last time around. We've also seen that the EU's attempts to broker ceasefire and some kind of lasting peace and stability in the Ukrainian occupation, the Normandy format, hasn't been working out so well. And that's led us to the US really speculating that it might step up and take more action, including potentially arming people in the Ukraine against separatists in eastern Ukraine. And also you have the US Congress pushing forward and codifying some more elaborate sanctions against Russia. What's your take on where that's going to go next? Well, it really is an astonishing set of developments that haven't gotten too much notice. President Trump named a new envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, former NATO ambassador. And Volker has suggested, and this is a position he supported in the past, sending defensive weapons to Ukraine. That's really controversial, not for him, but now because he speaks for the White House, and quite dangerous, because no one thinks that there's a military resolution of the Ukraine conflict possible. Ukraine is not going to win a military fight with Russia. Meanwhile, as you said, the Normandy format led by Germany and France has just completely failed. I mean, there's no getting around that. They had a conference call recently. It was President Macron's first participation in these talks. But what you realize is that more than two years in, their statement afterwards was that they call for an immediate end to ceasefire violations. It's like, this is a two years. The ceasefire has never really been a ceasefire. The violations continue. When does it stop? So no one quite knows what to do. Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, saying this July has been one of the bloodiest months in recent history. So a lot of confusion, disarray, different directions, and no closer to a resolution. And is Poroshenko making it easy for the West to come in and back him? Because there's a series of reforms that the EU has essentially required that Ukraine undertake in order to develop that closer relationship with the EU. And it seems like it's a very mixed record on his part. It, it's always mixed. And yet, of course, the EU will say he's working hard and Ukraine is trying hard. And the EU has finalized recently some of the political association agreements, the uh, deep and uh, comprehensive free trade agreement that set off the Ukraine crisis in the first place because Russia objected to those. All of those agreements are now fully in place. And yet Ukraine is still struggling with corruption we know that these battles continue. The Poroshenko just stripped the citizenship that he had given to the former Georgian president, Mikhail Shakashvili, who came in hoping to help Ukraine fight corruption. He ended up pointing a finger at Poroshenko, saying he wasn't doing enough. Their old university buddies obviously fallen out. Shakashvili is left stateless. We think he's now back in Brooklyn in his uncle's apartment. It's like a gang fight, really. We're not even in the realms of ideology. It's, it's the post-Soviet chaos that continues. And one might suggest that this is exactly what Putin's objective has been all along. As long as there's this kind of disarray, Ukraine is not joining NATO, Ukraine is not joining the EU, it's not finding its footing. Uh, there's talk that Poroshenko may call early elections to take advantage of this. In the meantime, eastern Ukraine, there are so many people displaced. We know you can't really have a full free and fair election without those folks. But if you ask Democrat in the U.S. if they'd be happy to do an election without Texas, they might say, sure, go ahead. Uh, there's inherent advantage, and yet it's not good for the future of the country. Speaking of disputed elections, Russia is also coming up to elections in 2018. And we've written this week at Politico about Alexei Navalny, who is one of the opposition figures hoping to contest the elections. What's your take on where Putin is headed with the elections? 
Well, the big question around Navalny is, will they let him on the ballot? He's been convicted of crimes. This is a constant thing where he's always back in court being convicted, then uh, exonerated, then convicted again. Technically, under Russian law, he probably isn't allowed to run, but we know the charges are usually trumped up. Navalny has made a great name for himself exposing corruption. He's never served in public office. He struggles with name recognition despite his quite well-known status in the West because state-controlled media in Russia doesn't cover him. Uh, Our story this week looked at his campaign chief of staff, Leonid Volkiv, who's trying really hard to get him the name recognition you would need across all of Russia. Putin remains a very popular figure, and this is going to be an uphill climb if Putin runs. He hasn't committed to running for another term. Chances are he wins. The question is, can Navalny get on the ballot, and does he get enough momentum to really suggest there's some kind of change happening in Russia? I don't know too many people in Russia who are very optimistic. So another controversial figure goes without saying, Donald Trump. And we hear from Anders Fogh Rasmussen in the following interview about how he's really changed his opinion on Trump. He started off as a big critic. He was encouraged by some of Trump's early appointments and moves, including in North Korea, in Syria. I wonder, David, do you think that Mr. Rasmussen's opinion is going to keep fluctuating like so many others, given the recent developments in the White House. Fluctuating between alarmed, very alarmed, critically alarmed. Uh, One of the fascinating developments this week was the release of a new book by a Republican senator, Jeff Flake of Arizona, saying that Republicans are in denial, that they really have to come to grips with the crisis they've created among conservatives in America by aiding and abetting the rise of Trump, who we know doesn't really have a politics that we can call conservative or liberal or anything other than chaotic at the moment. So it's not a surprise that that Rasmussen has adjusted his opinions. It seems folks in the White House adjust their view of their boss on a daily basis, but the one thing they can't seem to do is control him or his tweeting. Indeed. Well, one thing where Trump seems to have chimed with the mood, almost to the point of taking credit for something that was happening before he even came on the scene, is this need for European countries to up their defense spending. That's been his big NATO theme, something he's pressed every time he's come to Europe. I'm personally actually quite skeptical that there are we're going to see some really detailed plans on how these EU countries are going to increase their defense spending. Do you think Trump has the tools or the persuasion in his toolkit to actually get detailed, concrete plans out of the NATO allies? Well, he's definitely using his presidency as a bully pulpit, but I think what we may see Trump do. Remember, NATO committed to increasing spending among all the allies back in 2014, and Trump will take credit for pushing them to do something they had already agreed to do. The same way he's taking credit right now for job numbers and booming economy that might more accurately be credited to Barack Obama. So I think there may be some success in upping NATO spending, but what we may see is a very sophisticated and savvy Europe come back and say, well, To speed the movement of troops across Europe, we really need to improve roads and we need to um, change uh, some of the gauge of the railroads and be able to take credit for increased spending that is both militarily useful but also infrastructure that everybody would support and doesn't necessarily suggest that Europe is suddenly more uh, bellicose than it was before. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining us, David Herzenhorn. We hope you are going to get some break in this summer and uh, we'll talk to you very soon. It's great to be part of the conversation. Our main interview this week is with Anders Fogh Rasmussen. 
We spoke with Rasmussen just before the NATO's Leaders' Summit in May. So that's a word of warning there, that his opinions are from May, and given the fluctuations that we all see with the Trump administration and with other issues, he might have adjusted some of those views since then. Anders Falk Rasmussen, thank you for joining us. First question, how do we say your name correctly? Did I get it right? <laughs> yes, Anas Fall Rasmussen. Anas Fall Rasmussen. Yes. Okay, that's... We'll get it right. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> now, we could ask you about a lot of things. You've got a very long CV, but one thing you might not know is that you were a member of Parliament before I was even born. So, just, not by a long way. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you've got a lot of achievements there, but I wanted to start off with a bit of a life question first, which is that... For all these achievements, you're still going. You climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, I understand, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah, you're well briefed. My wife and I climbed Kilimanjaro. Mm -hmm. She stopped halfway. I fulfilled my mission Mm -hmm. and reached the top, which is almost 6,000 meters. Yes. So the last kilometers, I walked very, very slowly to Mm -hmm. adapt to the thin air. Only 600 meters in one hour. Hour, okay. Yes, indeed. But it was worth the whole effort. So you left NATO in 2014. You set up Rasmussen Global, I think, pretty much straight after you left NATO. Mm. And now you're expanding with the Brussels office. You're also expanding into the United States. So I wanted you to tell me a bit about that. And the skeptics... Tell me that your government work is a little bit controversial, that it maybe is a little bit like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, what they did after office, and you work for some big corporates too, like Goldman Sachs, but I wanted to hear your view on what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, actually I started Rasmussen Global the first day after I stepped down as Secretary General of NATO. Mm -hmm. So on the 1st of October 2014, Mm -hmm. I started after having had 5,000 people around me on a daily basis to help me, I was alone. To call the telephone company, to register my company, etc. And now, gradually, we have increased the number of collaborators. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have now uh, two offices, one in Copenhagen, and I'm in Brussels now to officially open the second office. And on top of that, we also have uh, partners in Berlin, London, and Washington to help us carry out our tasks. Mm -hmm. So you'll be a regular here in Brussels from now on? Again, Mm -hmm. I'm on a regular basis here in Brussels. I appreciate it because uh, one of our daughters is uh, also living here. Uh So I have a lot of good opportunities to visit her as well. Of course... It was a bit controversial to start Rasmussen Global because we're not used to it, definitely not in Denmark Mm -hmm. and rarely in Europe. While in America, you very often see people go from public office into private business. I don't understand why you couldn't do that. So I tried without knowing whether there would be a market. But there was a market and we have expanded ever since and my most important task right now is to act as foreign policy advisor to Mm -hmm. Ukraine's President Poroshenko. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that, because Russia hasn't been getting any softer in its uh, approach 
tell me more about where you have been finding success or where you're still hitting some roadblocks. Yeah, well, I would even strengthen your wording and say the Russians are actually digging in now in eastern Ukraine. They are definitely not preparing to leave, on the contrary. Recently, they decided to recognize legal documents issued by the separatists, and they didn't stop their crony seizure of Ukrainian-owned companies in the east, etc., etc. We have seen the militarization of Crimea. All these indications show that the Russians are digging in. They're not taking one single step to implement the Minsk deal. Mm-hmm. So the security situation is very difficult, but nevertheless, uh, Ukraine is carrying out necessary reforms, including a determined fight against corruption. So I think Ukraine as such is on the right track, but we have to address the challenges from the Russians. And what can the EU do, or what should it do beyond the sanctions to change the situation there? Is it about supporting Ukraine more, pushing Putin more? Both, I would say. We should push Putin much more by increasing the cost of destabilizing eastern Ukraine. For instance, we could strengthen sanctions. We could extend sanctions for not six months, as has been the tradition, Mm -hmm. but maybe 12 months. And on top of that, we could also include individuals and businesses that participated in the seizure of Ukrainian-owned companies. We could include them on the sanction lists, just to mention a couple of points Mm -hmm. where we could strengthen sanctions. And another project where you've been a bit critical, or a lot critical, is Nord Stream 2, the proposed gas pipeline. Would it be fair to say that you think that we need to stop discussion, stop work on that project so long as there are still sanctions or reasons for sanctions against Russia? Yes, that project should be stopped sooner rather than later because it would be a bit strange, actually, to allow... Nord Stream 2 in a situation where we do have sanctions against Russia. That would send a mixed signal. But I think on top of all this, we should also increase our assistance to Ukraine economically as well as militarily. The latter will be very controversial, but my view is that as long as the Russians continue to destabilize Ukraine, we should consider the delivery of defensive weapons to Ukraine mm-hmm. so that the Ukrainian army improves its capability to defend itself against the Russian aggression. Mm-hmm. And what about directly in the core Western countries themselves? What could we be doing better to defend ourselves, for example, around elections? Like it's fairly clear that Russia has been involved in some electoral interference. It's not clear the extent that they've tried or the extent that they've succeeded, but I'm not sure anyone doubts that they've really been trying. What can we be doing on our home front, so to say? Yeah, I think it's quite clear that Russia tries to interfere with the election processes. I think it's, uh, I think clear proof has been showed in uh, the United States, and uh, now we will see what will happen in the German election campaign later this year. So what could we do? Well, I think one thing, 
obviously it's very important to reveal such stories. I mean, to raise the awareness in European populations that the Russians are spreading fake news, they are trying to impact on the political debate, that's one thing that is very, very important. Secondly, of course, we should in general increase our cybersecurity and invest much more in cybersecurity and countering what I would call hybrid warfare. And finally, I think we should resume our Cold War activities. In Europe, we all remember... In an espionage sense? Or yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, uh, well, of course, that also has its role to play. But first and foremost, I would argue that we need to revive the activities of uh, Radio Liberty and all mm -hmm. those radio and television broadcasters that could spread more accurate news to Russian people. It seems interesting that people. the Western powers have really effectively decreased their investment in yeah. those sorts of tools or platforms right when Sputnik, RT and others have been receiving more investment, including in the Balkans, including other neighborhood countries. You're right. And so we, after the end of the Cold War, we considered Russia a partner. So we quickly harvested what I would call the peace dividend and reduced defense investments and reduced our investments in uh, information activities. While since 2005 in particular, Putin increased his activities media-wise by the establishment of Russia Today, and later they have uh, established Sputnik. We also know that they um, have organized what we might call internet trolls uh, based in St. Petersburg. They mm -hmm. pretend to be grassroots, but in fact they are financed by the Kremlin. So I think the best way to counter all that would be to increase not only our defense investments, mm -hmm. that should be done, but also our investments in social media and conventional media. Yeah. Well, that, that takes us neatly into two of the next topics, which is a bit how NATO is operating or will operate and in relation to the Trump administration. So I've got a few questions on those topics. But let's start with NATO. So you stayed on at NATO to make sure that the 2014 Wales summit went smoothly. Now, obviously, that was also the summit where these famous commitments to get to 2% of defense spending were locked in. What do you think it will take to make these national spending plans work? You know, we've got a plan for a plan, which is a step forward, but we still don't have anything really concrete. And I wonder uh, what it's going to take to satisfy the Trump administration. He has managed through this harsh rhetoric mm -hmm. to force the Europeans to reconsider their investments, not only economically but also politically in the transatlantic bond. In the past, we just took it for granted. And of course, President Trump's predecessors have also pressed the Europeans to invest mm -hmm. more. But the investments in defense have just uh, declined because, as I said, we harvested the peace dividend. Now, after he started his campaign for increased defense investments, and based on the decision we took in NATO already, as you mentioned, in 2014, 
we have seen the Europeans invest much more. Last year, the Europeans invested 10 billion US dollars more in defense than the previous year. And this development will continue, and more and more countries will fulfill the 2% criteria. Yep. Now part of it is about where you spend as well, isn't it? I yeah. mean, we could just give everyone in the Greek army a pay rise, but it wouldn't make us more effective in defending no. ourselves. So You're this right. gets back to cybersecurity, and what else would you prioritize? Uh, cybersecurity is one thing, but also better capabilities within what we call intelligence, reconnaissance, transport capacity. Actually, we do have more troops in Europe than uh, the United States, but we can't move them. Yeah. Uh, so not much use in Estonia <laughs> no, if uh, no, Russia right. decides to cross so the border. So we need more transport capacity. We need a, a capability to mm-hmm. uh, do what we call air-to-air refueling, etc. Mm-hmm. So we could easily pinpoint the areas in which we need more investments. And you're quite right. Mm-hmm. This is not just a question about how much, but also where we spend money. And I wonder if Brexit is a problem or actually a boost in this regard, because obviously the UK is one of the leading or the leading military power on the continent. But the fact that they're leaving also makes it a little bit easier to arrange defence cooperation. I would say it's both a problem and a boost, of course. It's a problem because you have seen this split within the Western Alliance. I have no doubt that Mr Putin had a glass of champagne when he saw the outcome of the Brexit vote Mm. because it is weakening our Western alliances Mm -hmm. in general. But at the same time, it can be or it could be a boost if the UK reaction to all this would be to strengthen their commitment to NATO and if they will continue to commit to EU internal security, including the fight against terrorism, etc. So it might be both, it sends a wrong signal, but if the UK itself compensates, so to speak, through a stronger commitment to NATO, then Mm -hmm. we could end up with a further boost uh, Mm -hmm. of NATO. Is it a bit the same with Trump, where he, uh, you were skeptical of him to begin with, but I'm, I'm noticing a bit of a conversion. I'm not sure how far you've converted, but tell me there. You're seeing some positive signs in his Yeah, approach. I was very much concerned about the candidate Trump mm-hmm. uh, statements. In particular, of course, his statement regarding NATO. He raised doubts about Article 5 and the American commitment to defending all allies. I was very much concerned about it. But after having taken office, I think he has made some positive decisions. First and foremost, he appointed good people to his security team. Mm -hmm. Secretary of State Tillerson, Secretary of Defense Mattis, his new national security advisor. I could also mention other people. They're all reasonable people and they have made reassuring statements. So that was a good thing. I also think it was a clever decision to strike Syria after Assad crossed the red line. Mm -hmm. It was also a good signal to drop a huge bomb in Afghanistan. And it's also reasonable to threaten North Korea with a military strike. So all these decisions and indications point in the right direction. So let me put it this way. I'm less pessimistic now than I was. 
Has he got enough to back it up? I mean, I take your point on North Korea, but it relies fairly heavily on China, his approach. I mean, he doesn't really even have a team in, in state or some of these other security positions. You go one layer down, yeah. and it's empty corridors over there in, yeah. in Foggy Bottom, for example. I mean, have we got people that you can pick up the phone to and they're actually there to, to talk? But that's exactly the problem. Too many posts are not filled yet, or they are filled with vacancies. So, I mean, this is a problem. But I think regarding North Korea, he had a very good meeting with President Xi Jinping of China recently. Mm -hmm. Of course, we don't know what was discussed in details, but I wouldn't be surprised if we will see an increased Chinese pressure on North Korea in the very near future. We saw already recently some Chinese restrictions on the coal imports from North Korea, Mm -hmm. and that was the first indication of some, I call it Chinese frustration with uh, Kim Mm Jong-un and the whole regime in Pyongyang. Uh, If this push is strengthened in the near future, I think it could also move North Korea into a more constructive approach. Now, another partner that we need to be a little bit more constructive is Turkey. The EU is uh, a little bit damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they don't push hard on the human rights and the rule of law side, they don't have so much credibility. Yet, they're an essential NATO partner. They're an essential partner for the migration deal. So you can't you can't leave the 49% who voted against that constitutional change hanging at the same time. How do you think the EU can effectively balance those competing demands? Yeah, but it is difficult. And of course, the domestic political development in Turkey is a matter of great concern. Mm-hmm. It is. And then you will have to choose how can you best impact on the development in Turkey by cutting all links to Turkey, forcing Turkey towards the east, or by maintaining those links and try to impact on the regime uh, in Ankara. I believe the latter approach would be the right approach. So, regarding NATO, we need Turkey as an important ally it's a bridge I would say between the West and the Middle East and Central Asia and there's no Syrian solution if there's no Turkey no there is no Syrian solution but there is no solution to many issues I think and they have the second largest army within NATO so it's a very important NATO ally and I think the best way to impact on Turkey would be to keep them at the table where we have the discussions and where decisions are made. Regarding the EU, I know that some people within the EU have had considerations on whether negotiations with Turkey should be suspended in the wake of the Erdogan victory. But I think we would, it would be a betrayal of the 49% that voted against the constitutional changes if we just cut talks. So I would argue that the best way is to continue EU negotiations with Turkey. The question, of course, is what should be the end goal of these negotiations? But that remains to be seen. I think here and now we should continue the talks. Mm -hmm. 
Now, maybe if we finish with a couple of questions about Denmark. I didn't really touch on populism yet, but I guess it will be easy to see populism broadly as a, a threat to European stability, or at least a disruption. Maybe it's not fair to characterize it as a threat. But in Denmark, including when you were prime minister, you were dealing with the Danish People's Party. You know, there's been a strong populist movement for a long time there. Have you got any reflections or advice on how other leaders should be coping? Yeah, absolutely. Though, of course, there are key differences from country to country. Mm. But I think Denmark was hit by this so-called populist movement before anybody else in Europe. And you're right. In 2001, I won a, a landslide a victory, but still, as usual in Denmark, we didn't get our own majority, mm -hmm. so we needed a coalition partner. And I decided to base my government on the Danish People's Party. That was considered a populist party. Um, I would say, as a lesson learned, that the best way to address populism is to take their concerns seriously and try mm -hmm. to address them. You will rarely see smoke without a fire. And that's exactly the case here. Uh, the Danish People's Party argued in favor of a strengthened legislation on immigration. Mm -hmm. um, and we strengthened legislation. And the, you, you heard an outcry in Europe. Today it's mainstream politics mm -hmm. in Europe. And in exchange for this strengthening of immigration legislation, the Danish People's Party supported our economic policies and our reform policies, including... <laughs> <laughs> We've got a, some police action in the background, yeah, yeah. listeners. <laughs> I'm ready to continue. So. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. Including an increase in the retirement age. Mm -hmm before the financial crisis mm -hmm. hit Denmark. Already in 2006, we decided to... You mean you did something that other European countries persistently avoid, which is structural reform? Exactly. Yeah. So That's one of my pet issues. I, I grew up in Australia where we're like structural reform nuts. Like everyone gets taught this in school, how important it is. And then when I moved to Europe uh, 10 years ago, I would just watch, you know, most governments just kind of like run away from the final moment when they had to really face a hard choice. They had to disappoint somebody yeah, and a exactly. lot of governments aren't willing to do it. They ran away from strengthening the legislation on immigration. They ran away from necessary structural reforms. We did that. 2001, 2006. Thanks to the inclusion of the so-called populist party in our parliamentary basis. They never became members of our government, but they supported the government. Yeah. So and did it force them to take responsibility too? Exactly. So I think that's a lesson learned. Mm -hmm. You should force them to take responsibility. If you isolate them, they just and, and marginalize them, they get materium and they will just grow even bigger. So I think that's the important lesson to be learned. Excellent. Now, maybe a final tip. I love Denmark. If, if I could get a passport and comply with that immigration system, I would. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm stuck here in Brussels for the time being. But have you got any tips for holidaying in Denmark or things people should do next time they're in Copenhagen? <laughs> yeah, or Jutland. Uh -huh. That's the western part of Denmark. Indeed. I, I, I grew up in Jutland. So... I could recommend, if you have children, I could recommend Legoland mm -hmm. in Bilon. That's a wonderful place for children. 
and otherwise I recommend the Danish beaches along uh-huh. the western coast of Denmark. That is an unexpected answer. Exactly. They are clean. You see white sand. You have no buildings whatsoever near the beach because it's all being protected. And you'll be very awake when you get out of the water. Yeah, also it's a bit cold. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Maybe go uh, on August 14 to 17. I think they're the good days. At the yeah, beaches. but uh, you're right. August is a good, is a very good uh, uh, time to spend in, in Denmark. And uh, you have holiday in Brussels anyway during August. So why not? Of course. Well... Anders for Rasmussen, thank you very much for joining us. And now it's time for our EU WTF section, and this week we're going to talk about the Greek statistician who was found guilty of breach of duty in the Greek courts. And guess what? It was for handing over the true economic statistics about the state of the Greek economy in 2009 and 2010 to Eurostat, the EU statistics agency. Lena, Alva, what do you reckon about this situation? Uh, I can go first. I think it's very interesting that, you know, a whole host of statisticians have come out in support of this poor man saying, you know, these are the right statistics. And if you are going to seek prosecution against him, what is that going to do to the future of statistics? Should you be reporting only good statistics? And if not, which it seems to be the case for Greece, should you be fudging them? And is this good, you know, for the future of Greece? I think this is probably not very good. We commented on last week that they just come out into the bonds market again. How does this look uh, for for creditors? Exactly, especially that they have uh, got uh, 260 billion. So it's a really big uh, question mark for the creditors. But my really surprise here is that the EU spokesperson said, "Okay, we believe in this data. We give all uh, credibility. And maybe to introduce a new method, a new measurement that they can do is to for the EU to compare the data that they receive or to verify it. Because this gentleman came out with all professionalism and, 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 and goodwill to give the real data. So the question is, why was the EU accepting wrong data before he came out with this correct information? uh, If I'm not wrong, I believe back in history, when when Greece joined the euro, they as well had a problem with the data they had provided the EU. So maybe the EU should learn to verify, introduce some requirement for the member states and uh, make it in a very transparent way. We don't have these uh, scenarios, uh, hopefully not with any other countries, but this is really impacting the credibility, the transparency and the governance. Are we, Alva, in a situation where the EU is being the nanny state again if it's constantly double-checking what the national governments are doing? Yeah, I think it's in so many areas that the EU can't really verify data that it gets from member states. Member states collect data in different ways. They collect different things. Even uh, I know from my own area of work that this is the case and that they don't follow up on everything. And it's not that they necessarily can. And sometimes it's politically sensitive. So around this area, especially around the euro, what you were talking about, Lena, that was really politically sensitive. So I don't know whether or not sometimes they just have to accept things in good faith, because they don't have the capacity, but also they don't have the inner knowledge that this man is, you know, obviously very clever. He had come from the IMF and he was doing a, a better job at looking at the statistics than previously. Who are they to challenge these statistics if they don't have that kind of mm. local knowledge? And I think it's a huge problem, but I, I don't see a way of them fixing it. 
This also, for me, raises questions about the Greek judicial system because there is a separate problem that's emerging there. We're all talking now about what a big problem exists in Poland with the government's attempts to essentially hijack or gut the independent court system there. There are emerging problems and complaints in Greece that I'm sure we'll return to in later podcasts. But I don't understand how this man, originally he was charged with essentially being a traitor to Greece for handing over this information. That charge was dropped. And it has been watered down into a situation where he was being charged for failing to inform the board before he informed Eurostat. But for me, it raises real questions about how stable the Greek judicial system is, how much it can be counted on to be independent. My point as well, it's about data. Now Greece has a special situation. We all know it. But what about the other member states or the the member states that will join the EU? Are we going to give them a kind of requirement to step up with the way they collect the data and their statistics and how they verify it? Now we have this case, but as well the EU should, being a nanny, being the mother, being the grandmother, still this is a very important issue that can really harm the reputation, can really harm the image, can really harm the trust. The whole union was built on trust. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you were saying about about the Greek court here. He was acquitted previously of what you were talking, which was going against something that was yeah against the national interest. And then now he's basically been put on trial again, and it seems to be quite politicized. The reason why, so yeah, to me that really puts the rule of law on the agenda, and it should put the rule of law in Greece on the EU agenda. And I'm sure we will talk about it a little bit more in the future. Well, there you have it, listeners. We are flagging for you that Greece is on the up economically, but is possibly on the slide with some of its other institutions. So we promise to keep tabs on that in future episodes. And now it's time for EU Thumbs Up. Speaking of EU statistics, there has been a new Eurobarometer survey released. Now, that's a survey of 33,000 people surveyed in all of the member countries of the EU. And it shows that all Europeans are more optimistic this year, except the Brits. So I'll leave you to guess why that might be the case. And what it shows is that 68% of Europeans also identify themselves as EU citizens. And so that's a bit of an uptick on previous years as well. People who identify themselves as EU passport holders as well as citizens of their own country. Yeah, I think that's great news. And obviously, it's definitely a reflection of Brexit. You know, I think... Guess you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe it's a bit of a fear. People are like, oh, God, of course we're European. How can we go it alone? I definitely feel like that happens in Ireland as well. I think people are now realise that it's a good thing rather than a bad thing, mostly. And what makes you feel that European? I mean, I can go to any European country whenever I want. I live in Belgium. Oh, One yeah. day I will. One day I'll be European <laughs> listeners. Yeah, Ryan, let's hope for that for me and you. <laughs> Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. And now it's time for Dear Politico, where we advise listeners on their problems where the personal meets the political. This week, we take a scan away from the European Parliament, because not all problems emanate from the European Parliament, and we try to help an NGO worker here in Brussels. And this NGO worker writes, Dear Politico, I work for an NGO that receives major EU funds. Several years ago, our funding line switched from structural, i.e. operational funding, to project funding. I wrote an application for a great project that was funded for three years. But instead of diversifying the operational funding and realizing the project, my director misled the commission and continued our operational work by calling our board members 
quote, project researchers, and calling board meetings, quote, researcher meetings, and so on, without ever aiming to achieve the goals of the project that was being funded. The project had so much potential to impact EU citizens, and I hate to see the money wasted. What should I do? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, Alba, this time I will say it. <laughs> it, it it's terrible. It's like a criminal fraud, you know. Um, I, I can't understand uh, the situation of, of uh, this director. How could they just take funds and, and play games with it? But should our writer come in and inform the police? What should they do? I, I, first, this gentleman has to go to the Olaf. And the second question, the board of directors, are they aware of this behavior and of this manipulation of the EU funds. If they don't know, maybe uh, he or she should go and inform them one-to-one -one meetings or uh, in writing, and then he or she needs to go to the OLAF. This is a... And now OLAF is the anti-fraud agency for our listeners who don't follow French acronyms at the EU. Yeah, if, if this lady or gentleman really do care about the well-being of the EU citizens and about this project... They shouldn't be, as I always say, silent and uh, go for it. Tough medicine from Lena. What about you, Alva? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll play devil's advocate here. You could actually, if the board members don't know, but there is a chance that the board members don't know, right? Because they probably haven't seen all of the kinds of ins and outs of how the, the funding is working and the spending. Well, it's highly uh, unlikely they would have signed off on the fraud about themselves, let's Yeah, say. exactly. I mean, I see an opportunity for you. Go to the board, report this, and if you uh, are as good at writing projects as, and finding funding as, as you kind of insinuate that you are, there could be, you know, a top-level job waiting for you at the end of this. What I would do is I would go to the board first and then, yeah, see what, see what they would like to do, particularly because you believe in the project. I mean, in, in other circumstances, you're right about Olaf, but if you really believe in the project, and I think this is quite a major fraud, but if you could kind of cut that off and make project meetings, project meetings, and don't call your board members project researchers, there's a way to claw back from this, I think. Yeah, and what about the EU, not the EU's role, but what does our listener do with the EU? Because it's the EU that's been allegedly defrauded. Is there an argument to go direct to the people who manage this project in the European Commission or the European Parliament? Once that's out there, the, the funding will probably stop, I think. Well, uh, it probably should stop if the allegations yeah. are true. But if you can turn it around and make sure that the money is actually being used for what you said it was going to be used for, then maybe you can do it. But if it's already happened, it's already taken place... I don't know. She or he need to uh, needs to protect themselves. How much they are involved in the project? If this there is a mm -hmm. criminal fraud, they will be as well at a certain point prosecuted or um, fired. Okay, that's some very weighty advice for our listener to consider. Try not to get prosecuted um, <laughs> when you deal with this process. Good luck. But <laughs> we hope that the EU funds get back on track. So that wraps up another edition of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Remember, we're just getting started, so that means we need your help to spread the word. Share the show on social media, subscribe, review us on iTunes, or get in touch by sending an email to playbook at politico.eu. And we'll be back next week at the same time with another EU Confidential. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 